lot going on here at the Medical Republic. We have a busy team of journalists and doctors writing stories, but there's also one person on our team who makes the magazine as pretty as it is. And that's Victoria, she's our graphic designer. Uh, and she's also our podcast producer, don't forget that. And we want to start introducing you to the rest of our team on our episodes here. So Victoria, welcome, and what brings you into the radio studio? So when I was laying out this week's magazine, Felicity's feature on qualitative research caught my eye. Yeah, and I heard that you actually wanted to ask Felicity some questions on it, so I'm just going to go and leave you guys to it and work on some other stuff. It was my tricky task this week, you know, as the graphic designer, to decide on an accompanying image. I settled on a cartoon of a few scientists who had opened the lid on a person's head and were stomping around with flashlights inside their brain. I'd like to know how accurate was that image? Actually, it was kind of pretty accurate. Researchers try to get inside someone else's mind and really see things from their perspective. So actually pretty accurate description of qualitative research. So... What is qualitative research? Basically, it's a way of understanding the messy reality of people's thoughts and feelings and personal narratives. So that sounds a bit soft, but uh, while I was doing this feature, I discovered that good qualitative research is uh, actually extremely rigorous and very difficult to conduct. The problem is that it's hard for outsiders to see how much work has gone into a piece of qualitative research. And it's really hard for non-researchers like GPs to sort the rubbish qualitative research from the good stuff. So what a lot of doctors tend to do is ignore qualitative research or sideline it, which is a pity because it's quite important to understand why patients don't take their asthma medications or book follow-up appointments or all kinds of issues that relate to general practice. Oh, okay. Well, that does sound very useful. So what were the most interesting studies of qualitative research which had to do with general practice? Um, Yeah, so in my feature, I spoke to quite a few researchers who were doing research on very intimate, sensitive issues. So one of them was research on junior doctors who'd been sexually assaulted at work uh, by other junior doctors or registrars. Research on penis enlargement, labiaplasty, why people don't disclose their gender and sexual identity to GPs. There's research on why women don't choose to use long-acting reversible contraceptives, even though they're the most effective form of contraception. So all of these topics, you couldn't study them through quantitative research. They're just too complicated. Even a comprehensive survey probably wouldn't cover a lot of the issues. And it's also hard to reach these groups of people because they're very vulnerable and you need to build trust with them. And a qualitative research project is kind of more likely to do that. So why did you decide to write this story now? So this story was sparked by a debate that we had in one of our editorial meetings. One of the doctors who works with us started talking about a piece of qualitative research that had come under fire by GPs saying that it was not done rigorously and that it wasn't useful. And this got me thinking, how do you know that it's not useful? How do you know that that was a poor quality piece of research? And I have no doubt that GPs have their ways of knowing. They probably know heaps more than I do. Um, But I've only really looked at quantitative research, so I've never really figured out what makes a piece of qualitative research any good. So how do you know that a piece of quantitative research is reliable? So in quantitative research, the rules of the game are fairly clear. Everyone knows what makes a good drug trial. Mm. Um, So some of the things you'll look for are, is it randomized? Uh, Is it placebo controlled? Is it double blinded? Um, Are there any conflicts of interest? Those kinds of things. And also, has the statistical analysis been done in a sensible way? It's really hard with qualitative research because 
you don't have any of those things. Yeah, you just thrown all of that out the window. <laughs> yeah. So with this process, they say, you know, a small number of people, but how do they know how many to do? How do they know when they're done? So qualitative researchers will keep interviewing people until they hit a point where they're starting to hear the same things over and over again, the same themes, the same ideas, the same responses. And that's when they know they've kind of captured the scope of what they need to capture. And then they will explore those stories in depth. Um, Quantitative researchers, on the other hand, have a statistical test for when they know they've got the right number of people in order to um, demonstrate a particular effect. Um, and that obviously doesn't work in qualitative research land, so they have to use a different um, mechanism. So you've mentioned all these things in quantitative research that allow you to evaluate it. How do you evaluate qualitative research? Yeah, so one of the most important things with quantitative research is the reproducibility. So you should be able to go to another population um, and do the same kind of experiment and get the same result. So if a drug worked over here, it's also going to work over here. With qualitative research, you can't possibly do that because you've only used maybe um, a handful of people. Maybe I think the largest qualitative research projects have about 50, 60 people, um, but most of them have a lot less than that. So it's, it's very hard to reproduce that in another chosen set of eight people, right? Mm. <laughs> um, but what you should be able to do is that if you take all of those transcripts of the interviews and all of the thematic analysis and you, you hand it to another researcher – they should also draw out exactly the same themes um, and meaning from that data that you did. So how do people try and counteract their own personal bias? Yeah, so it's totally different in qualitative research. Instead of trying to counteract, they actually embrace it um, and they become very self-aware of what their biases are. So a lot of researchers will sit down and draw up a map of what their beliefs are and then um, when they're designing their questions that they're going to ask people in interviews, they will share it with another researcher and um, get the researcher's input so they make sure that their biases are not influencing the outcomes of the research. So a lot of the questions will be incredibly open-ended. So instead of me asking a patient, uh, what's your experience with pain? If you have rheumatoid arthritis, I will ask you, what's your experience? So it just allows mm. the researcher to step out and let the person really control the conversation. Um, and then the other thing a, a researcher will do is um, get uh, a couple of researchers to look over their interpretation of the data at the end and just make sure that their biases haven't crept in. So sometimes they'll get the transcripts, give them to two or three researchers, get each, get each researcher to go through and analyze it and then compare results. Um, and if they have differences, then they'll battle it out and figure out <laughs> whose interpretation is more accurate. Um, and that makes it, there's a slight control on bias there. Um, and then the other thing that they'll do is, is because they're so self-aware of what their biases are, they'll, they'll actively challenge them throughout the process. So really when you're trying to, uh, address bias in qualitative research, it's, it's about drawing those perspectives in and having a lot of humility and knowing that you don't know everything. You have to be quite forthright about what theoretical lens you're using, which is slightly different to your personal lens. So, for instance, if you're studying labioplasty, you might be studying it through a theoretical lens of feminism, and that would be something that you would put in the paper. So I can see there are quite a few parallels between qualitative research and the job of a journalist. Um, do you think this has changed your approach to journalism and the job you do? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, and one of the reasons I was so drawn to this topic was because it does look a lot like journalism. 
But I like to put myself in my stories a lot, particularly the features, which I sometimes feel really uncomfortable about because it doesn't sound very objective and authoritative. But I feel a lot better about doing that, having spoken to qualitative researchers, because they do that. They, they declare who they are at the start of their research project. They say, I am a female, I am feminist, I care about these issues, I'm a GP, this is my perspective, um, this is where I'm coming from. Um, so I feel better about doing that now, which is good. <laughs> I feel better about saying I'm a medical journalist, I care about evidence-based medicine, this is my perspective. Um, yeah, I, I feel like the, the readers have a right to know who I am if mm. I'm telling them information, <laughs> particularly in a feature where you have a bit more space and time to do that. Mm. News, you don't have space. but mm. In this article, it seems like with your journalism, perhaps you've done some qualitative research on qualitative research, sort of Russian doll situation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a good way of summing it up. <laughs> and now I've interviewed you on qualitative research on qualitative research. Yeah. <laughs> um, so should we tell the audience that we're twins or is that going to make it really trippy? No, 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 let's leave that bit out. Okay. <laughs> this week I caught up with Professor Stacy Carter to find out a little more about how excellent qualitative research gets done. Professor Carter is the director of the Australian Centre for Health Engagement, Evidence and Values at the University of Wollongong. She's also a qualitative researcher herself. Hi, Stacey. Thanks so much for joining us on the Medical Republic podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your background? Uh, yeah, so I actually started as a clinician a long time ago. I was a speech pathologist, um, but about 20 years now ago, I trained in public health. Uh, and through my training in public health, became very interested in qualitative research and deliberative research, which is a discussion for another day, um, and in ethics in health and health service delivery. So now most of my work is around applied ethics and qualitative and deliberative research in public health and in health services. And what kind of qualitative health research have you been involved in? Um, so I've been involved in a lot of studies, actually. So often around thorny issues that are where it's difficult for people to work out what's going on, which is one thing that qualitative research is really good at. It's good at unpicking things that, that aren't uh, intuitively obvious to begin with. Um, and some of that work's been with general practitioners. So, for example, a couple of years ago, I did some work with a wonderful PhD student who um, is now a postdoc, Kristen Pickles, around how Australian and British GPs were using the PSA test in practice. And that helped us to unpick GPs' reasoning about why they might use the PSA test in different ways and particularly the variation in the way that they use that test. So often the work that I'm doing is either trying to get to the bottom of what things mean to people or trying to work out how things work in the social world. How are people actually doing things and why are they doing them that way? And what's an example of how that research has been fed back into general practice to help doctors you know, do a better job and help patients get better services? So there's lots of ways of doing that, obviously. Partly that's through talking to policymakers and trying to shape the policy environment in a way that reflects the way that general practice actually happens, but also through direct feedback to GPs. So sometimes, for example, I've had opportunities to go and speak to local groups of GPs presenting the work that we've done, and it's it's always satisfying and I think um, quite relevant to our conversation today when people see themselves in the findings of qualitative research 
and also are interested in the people that we've discovered who are different to themselves. So qualitative research is really good at showing variation and also good qualitative research usually will have a kind of verisimilitude. So um, people will look at the findings and think, yeah, actually you're really capturing the way that I think things happen in practice. So how does it differ from, say, a researcher just going out and asking a few people and, and getting a few collections of anecdotes together and sharing that? How is qualitative different? Yeah, that's a really great question because that's a common misunderstanding of qualitative research. So the main difference is in being systematic at every stage of the process. So if you're doing a qualitative research project, as opposed to just trying to get a few people's opinions about something, you would be thinking really hard about who are the different groups who might be relevant here? How can I make sure that I get the best possible representation of that range of groups? What are the questions that I have to ask? And do I need to keep changing the questions to reflect what I'm learning as I go in the course of the research project? which often sounds counterintuitive to people that are used to quantitative research. But one of the things about qualitative research is that you want it to be responsive because you want to be learning through the process and you want to be analysing your data as you go so that you can get the most out of the qualitative research process. Um, they're not just summarising a few individuals' random thoughts. Um, they're actually showing a pattern across a range of people and hopefully showing how that pattern might vary between different kinds of people. Um, and then our qualitative research is bringing this set of insights together as a whole to try and produce some kind of explanation or understanding that actually takes us somewhere new, somewhere that we weren't before, because qualitative research should be generating original knowledge. So it should be generating insights that we couldn't have gotten through quantitative research that should be grappling with questions that we haven't answered yet. And how do you go about reducing bias in qualitative research? So it's a really great and very important question. Um, trustworthiness is really important in any kind of research, of course. And so there's the question of how you guarantee to a reader that you've done your best to make sure that your, your interpretation and your reporting aren't biased. And then there's the question of how you do it yourself. So uh, in qualitative research, um, people often use a concept called reflexivity, which is the idea that the researcher themselves have to, has to have a very high level of responsibility and self-awareness and analysis of the process as they go to be able to account for what they're doing. To try to assure to an audience that your research um, hasn't been done in a way that's cherry-picking the answers that you want to hear, um, or that's just paying attention to one particular group and ignoring the experiences of a whole lot of people who might have a different kind of um, experience of the problem. You would be looking for, for example, quite rigorous sampling and selection that is trying to make sure that you get the diversity of experiences or the diversity of the process that you're studying. An idea that the way that questions were asked weren't leading, that they were open to the unexpected, that they were open to allowing the informants to tell the researchers things that they might not have expected to hear. You're looking for very rigorous evidence around the analytic process. So it's, it's shocking how rarely still reported qualitative research doesn't talk about how the analysis was done. And that analysis process is critical to the quality of qualitative research. And you're also going to be looking, just like in quantitative research, for researchers talking about the limitations of their work, what they weren't able to do, what might be missing, 
the participants that they wanted to be able to get to speak to but they couldn't access. So those sorts of activities and that kind of transparency in reporting can help to shore up the trustworthiness of and the usefulness of qualitative research. And one of the big things that gets mentioned when people are critiquing qualitative research is that the sample size is so small. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that and how you can still create excellent research even with a small sample size? Yeah, so there's small and small. I think it is, except in the case of very rare conditions where it's very difficult to find people who have the condition, so there's necessarily only a small number of informants, you don't usually want a tiny sample. So I would usually be a little bit um, uncomfortable if I saw a qualitative study that had seven interviewees, for example. I would be usually looking for a larger sample than that. But samples are, of course, always smaller than they would be in quantitative research. So what you're looking for in the sample are people who are informative. So unlike in quantitative research where your purpose is to count, in qualitative research you're looking for informativeness because you're wanting to discover new things, things that you wouldn't have imagined were the case. And so to get that information, that in-depth information, you need to spend a lot of time with people and you need to gather data that's very demanding to analyse. So it's about the volume of the data, the volume of information, not about the number of participants that gives us the quality product. One of the major things I was trying to answer in my feature was uh, this question of how can GPs spot really rubbish qualitative research? Um, so what are some of the red flags that you might uh, look for and, and what does really bad qualitative research look like? <laughs> it's such a difficult question to answer because you always feel like you're kind of ratting on people, but, but I think it is an important question, especially if you're going to use it in a clinical context. So a particular thing to look out for is qualitative research that's trying to be quantitative research. The other thing that is good to look out for is to look for studies where you're, you're actually getting a meaty explanation of what's going on. So often poorer quality qualitative research will have a few very thin themes um, which don't seem to mean very much and are maybe a bit obvious and will have a small amount of text under each theme and maybe a couple of quotes um, and they don't really reveal a lot that's original or that's new. So if you're looking at a good quality qualitative study, you're likely to really see something that's, that's um, much more substantial and gives you a, a lot more insight. So if people want something to go and have a look at, to give them a sense of um, just how great, really good qualitative research can be, there's a wonderful classic qualitative study called Explaining Michigan. The um, lead author on that is Mary Dixon Woods, an extremely eminent health service researcher. So if you search for Explaining Michigan, that paper is readily available online. And it's a beautiful example of the way that really fantastic qualitative research can give you blinding new insights that you would never have had if you'd approached a problem only quantitatively. What sort of insights does it have? Well, it's an amazing qualitative study, actually. So it's linked to an evaluation of an intensive care unit project, the aim of which was to reduce rates of central venous catheter bloodstream infections, um, which we can all agree is a really important thing to do. And uh, what the analysis does is to show the technical 
instruments that were used in the intervention. So things like carts that had equipment on them and processes that were written in manuals weren't actually the things that created the change. So the things that created the change were things like having systems that built a sense of community between people so that they identified as one community with a shared project and creating a culture of real commitment to doing better um, in practice that, that occurred in really subtle ways that the qualitative paper was able to explicate and that weren't actually even on the radar of the formal quantitative evaluation. Um, so it's a really good example of, of the way that you can understand things that you wouldn't have been able to understand otherwise um, without doing a qualitative study alongside the important quantitative evaluation measures. Oh, wow, that's so interesting. And it sort of shows that there's all this stuff in medicine that you can't count, but um, it's, it's still so relevant to the quality of the care. Well, thank you so much for your time. That was fascinating. No, my pleasure. That's it from us this week. Uh, next week's going to be quite an interesting week, isn't it, Francine? Yeah, so next week we are hearing the federal budget and we'll be back with an episode thinking about whether we got what we wanted and how GPs feel about it.